So yeah, so good morning and welcome to Willowburn. And as I said, we're back into Revelation chapter 5. This is the 11th session in Revelation. It's a magnificent book, but it's a book which you need to make sure you have your harness on, your five-point safety harness, because it's just in your face, isn't it? In so many different ways. But I just think it's like, it's just the book that we need to hear in this day and age as a church. And as Camille was saying before, like how do those concepts of unanswered prayer joy, uh, God's sovereignty, how does it all come together? If you read Revelation and you soak in it, you see how it all comes together. And so I wanted to ask the question today, why is there sobbing in heaven? And you might think, what's he talking about? Heaven's a perfect place. There shouldn't be sobbing. There shouldn't be weeping. There shouldn't be crying. What is he talking about? Maybe we should read just to make sure I'm not uh, blaspheming or being heretical. So let's read Revelation. I'm just going to read the first half. And then the second half, we're going to read slash sing in a special way at the end. And I just want you to remember our memory verse, which we'll actually go back to uh, now that we finish the kingdom series. Just remembering, though, that the kingdom coming is just infusing all of Revelation. But does anyone remember the Revelation memory verse? I'll just give you the gist of it. Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed is the one who hears it. And blessed is the one who takes it to heart, that is, obeys it. That's why we entitled the series, Blessed is the One Who Does This Word. Um, oh, sorry, we entitled the sermon, uh, the sermon series, Revelation, Doing the Words kind of thing. So let's just read chapter 5, just a few, or the first half of it essentially. This is John speaking. He's had this magnificent vision of God. He's in God's presence. We know it's God from chapter 4. You can have a look at that later. And now it kind of zooms in in this heavenly vision. It kind of goes to zoom perspective on this scroll in the hand of God. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open. In some versions of your Bible, it'll say, wept much. In others, it'll say, weep loudly or weep bitterly, i.e., sobbed. I sobbed because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. What's inside this scroll? Chapter four, uh, Verse 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And as I said, we'll read the rest of chapter 5 in a special way shortly. But again, we come back to this question, why do you think there's sobbing in heaven? You shouldn't expect to see sobbing in heaven, should you? It's a perfect place. It's a place full of joy and satisfaction. It's a place where God himself dwells in all his holiness and his glory. Shouldn't there be perfection? So it kind of got me thinking about, well, what do you actually expect to see in heaven then? And what I love about the Bible is you can, kind of, you can kind of move through all of Scripture and you'll see now and again these magnificent visions. They're called epiphanies where ancient men of old 
and women see God. And so I was kind of thinking, okay, what do you expect to see in heaven? Well, what do we expect to see from Scripture? And one of my favourites is Ezekiel. Ben mentioned Ezekiel before in Ezekiel chapter 1, and you might like to in later on this week go and look up some of these yourself and spend some time there. Ezekiel has everything you'd expect when God shows up. There's a storm. There's an immense cloud with flashing lightning, brilliant light. There's the centre of this fire that's glowing like metal. There's this almost otherworldly, supernatural beings, powerful and mighty, surrounding the throne. And you read it and it's kind of knee-shakingly awesome. I'll give you some. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he's looking at God, he, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. And from there down, he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down. Expect to see that in heaven. And that's awesome. Daniel was another one. Daniel, that great prophet, he lived in a cosmopolitan culture, in a culture that was just against everything he believed in, and yet he stood firm. And he had this word given to him and he said as I looked thrones were set in place the ancient of days took his seat and there we see a throne flaming with fire a river of fire flowing out from him thousands upon thousands ten thousands upon ten thousand attending him and then he sees this son of man coming with the clouds of heaven and he just boldly approaches the ancient of days and he's given authority glory and sovereign power his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is one that will never pass away. That's the kind of stuff that's going on in heaven when we look at, um, when we look at the, uh, older, the older scriptures. This one's actually, it's got Daniel there, that's wrong. This is from Isaiah, Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted and the train of his robe filled the temple. And again, strange beings surround him, awesome beings, mighty beings, and they're all worshipping him. And then you see these responses. Ezekiel's just overwhelmed. He just, he's just overwhelmed for a number of days, for seven days after he sees this. Um, Isaiah, he's like scared. I'm ruined. I've seen God. I'm going to die. Again, if you want to look into this yourself, go and look at it later on. Find out what happens next in Isaiah 6. We won't go there today. And then Daniel, he's deeply troubled. He's deeply troubled and he turns pale. He's so scared. But sobbing, you never actually see sobbing in any of those epiphanies, which I find really interesting. And whatever it is that causes this sobbing, it must be so weighty, so disturbing, so distressing. And I think it's so important that we do not miss why John sobs in heaven. And I want to thank Sandy because she was the one that drew my attention to this question when she sent me a text, so you can blame her for what comes next. Well, not really. Uh, you can blame me. Um, but I really want us to focus on this whole sobbing idea, this weeping. And so let's just uh, go to Revelation 5, if you're not there already. Let's just look at verse 1, and it says there, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, seated with seven, uh, sealed with seven seals. So we know, I've already said, who's seated on the throne? It's God. So he's got this scroll in his hand. And if you look at Revelation 5, you'll see all the echoes of all those Old Testament scriptures of who God is. 
of when God shows up. You'll see all those kind of, um, they're almost like reruns of who God is. You've got the throne room, tick. Uh, fire and lightning, thunder, tick. You've got breathtaking numbers of attendants and worshippers, tick. That's all from Old Testament to New Testament. You've got absolute, comprehensive, profound, capital W, worth ship, worth hyphenated ship. It's, it's literally giving worth to God. That's what worship is because he is deserving of that. And that's all expected. But then you get to this scene where it zooms in on the scroll and all of a sudden something unexpected happens. Luke talked about unexpected things in Scripture and how it just gives reality to it. This, to me, gives reality to it as well. It's like, who would write that they're sobbing in heaven? You know, who would do that? To me, it just kind of reeks of something authentic going on. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, so it's got writing on both sides, sealed with, both, uh, sealed with seven seals. This isn't what makes John, John sob, though. It's what happens next, isn't it? So we read in, chapter, uh, in verse 2, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy, who is worthy, who has worth to open the scroll. That word worthy is coming from an ancient um, word of scales. So you'd go to the marketplace, you would buy something, it was worth something. You would put the money on the scales or the weights or whatever, and it would balance out. Okay, that's worth that. Who is worthy of this on the scales of the universe, the cosmic scales of righteousness and judgment? Uh -huh. Who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll? Now, this mighty angel, this is a, later on you'll see John almost try to worship a being like this. If you saw him now, you'd be very, very scared. Okay? And he has his voice that projects somehow almost trans-dimensionally, into all of existence. And it goes out, his voice goes out, and it says, who is worthy? Is anyone worthy in Willowburn? Who is worthy? And John's waiting expectantly. Out of all these magnificent creatures and beings in heaven and in all of the cosmos, there must be someone who's worthy. But verse 3 says, no one in heaven or on earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or even look into it. They can't even glance at it. And I began to sob because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. So we know why they're sobbing in heaven. They're sobbing, thanks Luke, on Facebook. I haven't looked at it, you just told me. Um, they're sobbing because there's no one worthy to open the scroll. So we need to ask, well, what's in the scroll? And we're not told. Some scholars think it's a covenant or a contract or even a title deed, but we're not told what it is. And there are many ways in which scrolls were used throughout the Old Testament and into the New. But here's a question. I'm not, I don't even, I don't, I'm not going to bother with it because I don't know. So I kind of think God doesn't really care too much that we do know what's in there. What we do need to know, though, and here's a question that we can answer definitively, is what does the scroll do? When the scroll is open and each of the seals are torn off, what does it do? Um, I think that's a really important question because it's a question we can answer. And here it is. I'm going to give you the general answer of what it does. And you can, in the next few weeks, don't look at it now because I really want you to listen to me. But over from chapter 6, 7, 8, all the way up to about 18, 19, you see what the scroll does. Because the scroll, the opening of the scroll, initiates everything that happens. And in big picture stuff, Pilate kind of speaks 6,000 foot above the train. All that is wrong, all that is evil, all that is vile, all that is abusive, all that is bullish, 
all the terrible tragedies and wrongs against seven-year-old girls in Pakistan, all that is twisting and bending the world, that scroll and those seven seals, they finish it. Once and for all, they finish it. That scroll brings about final redemption, final justice. It sets everything right. The final defeat of Satan. The final defeat of this iconic city called Babylon, which represents all cities when they go bad, all nations when they go bad. The final defeat of our worst enemy of all, death. That's what the scroll does. The scroll shows that that which can be redeemed will be and that which cannot will finally be once and for all destroyed. That's what the scroll does. And it finally brings us to this. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Don't think you're going to heaven. Heaven is coming to you. It is coming to reform and to revitalize and to renovate this universe and to bring a new heavens and a new earth. That's what the scroll does. The dwelling place of God is now with man. That's what the scroll does. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God, face to face. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain for the former things have passed away. That's what the scroll does. And what the scroll does, if you want to see it in a little bit more detail, I won't spend too much time, but in chapter 6 and 7, and then moving on, you see this cycle of judgment and redemption, judgment and redemption, judgment and redemption. And judgment and redemption are essentially the two sides of the same coin. And you might go, I don't like that judgment idea from God. We'll talk about that very, very shortly. But if you have a look at chapter 6 and 7, you see the seven seals and you see the natural consequences are just of, of, of selfishness, of greed, of, at a national level, are just opened up. The nations get what they finally deserve in many ways. Famines, plagues, war, all the natural consequences of the nation's patterns of behaviour that emulate the quintessential iconic nation Babylon they get their just desserts. And then just before the seventh seal, we see this. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So you've got judgment and then redemption. So you've got judgment of the nations and all their evil ways, and then you've got redemption. And then the seventh seal uh, is blown, and that brings out seven angels with seven trumpets. Seven is always this comprehensive completeness. So bear with me. I know sometimes all these numbers and stuff. Just bear with me, though. Okay? And then you see, again, um, judgment coming, and then you see these two witnesses prophesying, you know, seeking to redeem people still, even in the midst of the judgment. So this is the way it works, guys. It is the doctrine of absentia. Right? It is a do think of, think of the, the pigsty with the prodigal son. What happens there? He goes into the pigsty and everything is taken away from him. He's given his father's riches. He spends them all. He, he, he is not a good steward of his father's riches. And he goes into the pigsty and what happens in that moment? 
He sees the natural consequence of his behavior, of his attitude, of his godless attitudes and behaviors. That is judgment in that moment. And in that moment, he can do one of two things. He can continue to harden his heart and die in that pigsty, or he can go, I must return to the Father. And what you see in the macro scale in Revelation is that same principle. In absence, as everything that we would um, make our own idols, our, our comforts and so forth, God shows us the true nature of what they are like without him, all these things that we're clinging to. And in those moments, we can, we can repent. This is what the two witnesses do, the two prophets. And then you see in Revelation 11, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And the 24 elders who sit on the throne uh, um, before God, they fell on their faces and worshipped God. So again, you just see this. God doesn't want us to forget. In the terrible judgment, as God sets things right, there's still redemption, judgment, redemption, judgment, redemption. And then we see the woman and the dragon. We see war in heaven. We see these beasts. And then again, chapter 14, more redemption, the 144,000. We'll talk more about them in the future. And then in chapter 15 to 18, seven angels, seven plagues, seven bowls of wrath, Babylon falling. And then finally in chapter 19 through to 22, final to redemption, the new heaven, the new earth. That's magnificent. And again, you might go, I'm a bit uncomfortable with that. You read the detail of that, it is not nice. That's why you need your five-point harness on. And you need to consider what that would look like in our own world. You need to understand that is what is coming. And even if you don't get to that point where it happens at the macro scale, the cosmic scale is going to happen for you at the individual scale. I was running this morning and I was trying to be in a bit of a hurry because I was running short of time. And as I ran past a particular house, I saw an older guy there. It was, must have been about, I don't know, mid-80s or something. And so I ran past him and I thought, I feel like I should go back and invite him to church. I was like, is that from you, Lord? Or is that just my vivid imagination? And I need to get home. And in the end, I thought, I don't know what it is, but I'm just going to go and ask him. So I went and asked him. I said, this is going to sound really... I said, g'day, how you going? Adrian's my name. His, his name was Alf. And I said, g'day, how you going? Has anyone ever asked you to church before? He goes, oh, church, I'm done with that. And then, though, he tells me how he um, had, 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 had nearly become a priest. And then he started to talk to me in Latin. The apostles, he gave me the Apostles' Creed in Latin. And I said, I know carpe diem in Latin. <laughs> Seize the day. Um, and, and I was like, in my heart, I was going, oh, wow. And then and I was looking at him, and he was like, you know, so old. And he goes, ah, I'm done. I'm done. And he meant, like, oh, I'm done. Like, I'm old. I'm done. There's nothing more for me. And I just think to myself, like, again, absentia. This is an older man, and everything now, his body is about to break down. He, tomorrow he could die, and he knows that. And this is what is wrong with our world. And this is what the scroll is seeking to set right. And you can either be redeemed from that, or you can just accept the consequences of that. And so I had a little chat with him, and I talked about creation. I talked about what God had done. And, uh, and I don't know, I invited him again, and he said, nah, no worries. And so we just prayed for him. I actually went past his house to see if he was there. I was going to invite him again, but he wasn't out the front anymore, so I kept going. It was a little bit creepy, probably. Uh, but, like, the thing, about, the thing about judgment and the thing about our, our, our little lives is that we're all heading for it. Even atheists agree that we're all heading for something destructive, right? Whether it's just entropy of the universe or whatever. So... 
What God has done is, here is the scroll, it's opening up, there's judgment coming, it's showing the true nature, and it's offering redemption the whole time. But judgment is really a question of, will God be faithful? So will God be faithful to the little children who whimper in their beds? What's mummy's boyfriend going to do to me this time? To the little girl in Syria, or sorry, to the little girl in Pakistan, will God be faithful to me? To those little children in Syria and their parents who are then crucified, to the growing number of rape victims, even in our own society, to the astronomical numbers of refugees more than ever before in all of history, to a planet that is having its life literally sucked out of it with this incessant greed and an economic system that demands more and more and more be taken from it, will God be faithful to that? Will God be faithful to this, not just a divide, but a grand canyon? between the rich and the poor. Will God be faithful to them? Will God be faithful to his damaged, bent, twisted creation and to the humanity, 90% of whom are suffering and struggling and straining right now and 100% of whom are going to suffer, suffer, struggle and strain at some point like Al and like we all will? The real question in our mind shouldn't be, do you really have to judge? Do you really have to? It should be, how long? How long, Lord? before you set things right. How long? And so we come again to this question of why is there sobbing? Who is worthy now to judge and to redeem? Who is worthy of that? Like Who is worthy? Like We're told of a revelation of God to Moses and it goes like this in, uh, in Exodus. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebelliousness and sin, and yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Do you see the paradox there? He punishes the wicked, the rebellious, and the sinful, because what does that do? It, it, it ends up with little girls getting raped. That's, that's what it does. Okay? And then he says, but he, doesn't, but he, but he forgives. Um, but he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. So he's got this, he forgives on one hand, but he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. How does that go together? Who, who is worthy of that? Who can do that? That's the kind of paradox that's even in heaven now. And who is powerful enough to bring um, creation to its final state and, 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 and to redeem it? If no one is found worthy, we're completely lost. The world is doomed. Is there a way? Is there a worthy person? That's why they're sobbing in heaven. John cries for the same reason most prophetic sobbing occurs. If you go through and see why people cry in the Old Testament, over and over again, you'll see it's because of death. Over and over again, you'll see it's because of suffering. And over and over again in the Old Testament, you'll see it's because they want their land to be restored. They're not actually waiting to go to heaven. They're not going, Lord God, get me to heaven, get me to heaven. What they're saying is, when are you going to set things right in the kingdom? Even the disciples, at the end of their time with Jesus, they say, so are you going to restore the kingdom now? That's their whole, um, I just lost my connection. That's their whole, the, 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 the compulsion of their heart to weep is towards that. When will you set things right in all of creation? How long, Lord? How long? Um, so over and over again, you see that. How long? How long will that, how long will death be allowed to reign? Um, I just wanted to uh, give you a couple of verses. Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. Ben, it was so interesting you brought that out, that same concept in Ezekiel. 
The people will be brought back. We see the new heart that's given. That's cool. But did you notice that the people are brought back? The kingdom is restored. That's the promise there. That's what they're waiting for. That's what John's waiting for as well. And I invite you to search that out for yourself. Search out, do a keyword search on why people weep or why people cry how long. And most times it's because of death and suffering because they want the kingdom restored. And so he weeps and he weeps because he wants the kingdom restored. He doesn't want earth, the earth to continue in decay. He doesn't want little kids to keep getting their fingers cut off. And so he looks in verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Stop your sobbing. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And like you expect that in heaven, don't you? That metaphor of a lion, a powerful beast. So he's kind of evidently he's not looking in the right spot and he's told, stop, probably because his head's down, because he's sobbing. And he goes, look, behold. And he looks up. So like if you've been told and your eyes, your eyes are probably closed, you're probably sobbing and you're told, the lion, the lion of Judah. You look up, what do you see? <laughs> wow. Again, this is why I think the Bible's real. Who would write, there's a lamb in heaven? Well, who would write that? Only God could possibly write that and get away with it. Between the throne, verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So it goes from lion to lamb, lion to lamb. How on earth can a slain lamb be the one worthy? Remember, he's got to have, if he's going to bring this right, if he's going to set creation right, whoever's going to be worthy has to have extreme power, amazing resources, incredible wisdom, infinite might, honour, glory, blessing. He's got to be up, able to uphold the holiness of God. That's the doesn't, hold, doesn't let the guilty get away with it. And he's also got to uphold the love of God all at the same time. Who is worthy of that? And we know the lamb is worthy because, first of all, he has the spirit. Now, if you have a look here in verse 6, it says, Between the, th uh, the throne and the four living creatures, I saw a lamb standing, and it says there, with seven horns and with seven eyes, and then we're told, we could go, oh, what's that all about? Well, he tells us that's the seven spirits of God. Another way of saying that is the sevenfold spirit of God. It is the Holy Spirit. It is Jesus who has the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, you might go, what's the Holy Spirit got to do with judgment? Isn't he just a counsellor? Isn't he just a counsellor? Well, remember our John series? Do you remember what Jesus said there? He says, I'm telling you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. That doesn't sound very judgy, does it? But if I go, I will send him to you. But what did he say? What did he say that uh, the Holy Spirit would do? Does anyone remember? Exactly. He will convict the world of sin. So this is the seven eyes thing. Only what that represents is comprehensive knowledge, omniscience. He can go out and he knows your heart right now. He knows every single person's heart. So when he judges, it will be comprehensively right and just. He will, convict the sin. he will convict the world of sin and righteousness. And then he says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit is instrumental in bringing about judgment. Judgment is always about revealing what is truly in people's hearts and the true state of things before then dealing with it in a comprehensively just way. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness. 
The Holy Spirit is involved in judgment. He is worthy because he has the Spirit who judges the thoughts and attitudes and reveals and, and he offers conviction to people. But if there is no conviction, if there is a hardening, then final judgment. It'd be like in your family, if you had a child that you love so much, but he developed some sort of terrible uh, lust and sexual fixation and he wanted to hurt other children and you just you constantly called him to redemption, you're constantly trying to help him, getting him the best counselling in the world, doing everything you could, but he just wanted to keep hurting his brothers and sisters. What do you do? At some point or another, you have to remove him from your family and it will break your heart, but you will do it for the sake of the others. That is what is happening in Revelation. And the Holy Spirit is involved in that because the Holy Spirit is the one that brings out the truth. And Jesus is the one who has the Holy Spirit and sends him out. He is worthy, Jesus is worthy to open up the scroll because mighty beings worship him. I already said it before, any of these beings were with you right now, you'd be tempted to worship them. We see that later on in Revelation and John's told, no, 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 don't worship him. But these are, these are, they've got thrones, they've got power. We don't really know too much about them apart from that. These four living creatures and the 24 elders, but we do know that they worship the one at the centre. He is worthy because prayers are never unanswered. And this ties into what Camille shared before, I believe. He is worthy because prayers are never unanswered. I just want you to think of a bunch of prayers that you've prayed that have never been answered. Maybe even just one or two. Maybe you're even worried about what we prayed in the prayer and share time won't be answered because we've got ourselves into such a mode of thinking that, well, we pray and we pray. I don't really know why. Most times they don't, they don't get answered. I want us to read verse 7 here. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And then in verse 8, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So what you can do in Revelation is you can map out the metaphor, right? You go, he's given us a bowl of incense. What does a bowl do? It's a storage device. <laughs> it stores things. So I love that picture because what it means is when I've prayed and my prayer hasn't been answered, it's not that it hasn't been answered, it's in storage, waiting for this final moment. Now let me, whatever prayer you had in mind when I asked you before, did you pray that for, it was probably for a loved one, wasn't it, or a family member or something like that, but do you realise they're going to get old and die? And do you realise that as a part of this creation, unless the, the scroll is opened, um, they've got no hope. That little prayer was just a near horizon prayer. The far horizon prayer is, I want them to be in the kingdom. Really, I, th I can think of any prayer of love that you truly pray in God's will is ultimately a prayer of, I want them to be in the kingdom. I want them to be with the Lord Jesus. I want them to be there. And so all these prayers when we pray, it's like they're going to a storage device. The prayers of the saints are in a storage device. They're in a bowl. So you've had unanswered prayer. I get that. Maybe you've prayed for a daughter to be healed and she isn't. But what about here at the redemption of all things? Your prayer is answered. You've, you've desperately prayed for a dying beloved. They die anyway. But what about here at the redemption of all things? Your prayer is answered. All the prayers you've ever prayed, the noble prayers, the prayers that are in his will, not the selfish ones, they are in this storage device and they are pleasing to God. Incense was pleasing to God. We'll see more of that later on in Revelation. They're all collected. It's not that he said no, he's just saying wait, just wait. Sometimes though he gives us like little foretaste and we get healing now. 
But whichever, whichever we get, whether it's now or later on, please keep praying. Please keep praying because your prayers count. That's why we're told, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. At the redemption of all things, you will receive it comprehensively. You want to sing songs about it. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You know, when, when he's glorified in heaven, you're going you're gonna to just want to, oh, you're going to write your own songs. You're just going to want to praise him so much. In that day, you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. At the redemption of all things, he'll give it to you. Your prayers are going to be answered. And then finally, he is worthy because he was slain. What other God in all of creation in, that we've created in our own heads, what other God slain? We said last week, many people have wanted to own the high ground. Only one God has stumbled up the high ground with a cross on his back and died there. And so they sing this new song in 9 and 10, worthy of you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God, for every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. You were slain, so now there can be redemption. Now there can be forgiveness. Don't think that God can just forgive you because he's just loving and kind. What it cost him to truly make things right in the universe that he created was to go to the cross and die. That is a terrible price. But he can now forgive. But for those who do not turn, for those that just continue to harden their heart, there will be ultimate judgment. They will be removed from God's presence forever. He can judge. He must judge or the world will continue to buckle. And what I love about this kind of picture in heaven is that God, um, sorry, John cries, but he's not rebuked for it. It seems appropriate and right that in heaven, when even in that beautiful place, that when all these atrocities, these terrible things are considered, that there should be sobbing. And what it says to me is we don't have a God who sits on his throne, surrounded by all that magnificence, and all the peasants, all the little people, are over here somewhere. And you know, all the little mongrels, all the little wicked people, they're over here, and I don't care. Because I've got my angels and I've got my praise going on. No. No, he's become one of those little people and he has died and that is why he is worthy and that is beautiful. And the weeping stops and I thought I'd put this up here. It kind of seems to fit in a... <laughs> I probably should have asked permission, hey. So it's just a little text there from Kerry saying stop crying and come home. Um, that was a few years ago at one of our first SOM uh, School of Ministers times together. We had the men together and... The Lord was really, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, moving powerfully amongst us. There was a bit of man tears, a few man tears and so forth. And so, you know, we ended up going a lot longer than what we thought, a little a mini revival kind of thing. I pray God brings that again. I honestly do. Um, and on one of these times, Kerry sent me that text, but it just seems to fit. It's like, stop crying and come home, John. You know, like, stop crying because look what's happening. Home is finally coming to you in a sense. Stop crying, stop sobbing. The lion and the lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ has the power. He has the resources, the wisdom, the might, the honour, the glory and the blessing. He is the lamb that was slain. He has done the impossible. He has redeemed sinners. He has redeemed the world. Only he is worthy to open the last chapter of this tragic tale and turn tragedy into pure joy. You are worthy because you are slain and by your blood you ransom people for God. 
And I just hope this encourages you to this year serve him with all your heart. Because again, I tell you, my brothers and sisters, he is serving you with all his heart. He loves his creation. He loves you. He loves you so much. You know, where, where you go, Lord Jesus, that's where I want to go. I want to be with you heart and soul in 2017 because you said that I am with, he's with us in heart and soul. So I'm going to ask Gabe to come out now as we finish the sermon and you'll go, hey, Adrian, you haven't done the rest of chapter five. We're about to do the rest of chapter five in the only, I think, well, not the only, but in an appropriate way because chapter five, the rest of chapter five from verse nine onwards is they sang a new song. You'll notice in your Bibles that it's indented, isn't it? Most Bibles, hopefully indented. Most times when you see indented prose like that, it is the translator's way of cueing you into this is a song or poetry. In this case, it's a song because we know they sang a new song. And this is their song, and I'm pleased to say there's no CCLI requirements, there's no copyright requirements for this particular song. However, the version we're going to sing is um, by 10th Avenue North. But you'll notice the rest of chapter 5 is a song, and so I just want to read it. Um, Gabe is actually, and I'm going to use it as an intro, and what I'd like us to do is stand now because I noticed that I'm pretty sure that those heavenly beings, those super beings, those angels and so forth, they're not sitting. They're standing. So I invite you to stand as I read this song from Revelation about the worthiness of the Lamb, the worthiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're just going to follow Gabe naturally into singing the song as a whole, which will then lead us into communion. And the song will be uh, Lamb of God by 10th Avenue North. Maybe you want to close your eyes as I read. Um, maybe you want to keep them open. I don't mind. Revelation 5, 9 to 14. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's you. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. And then I looked around and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. Some say billions, millions are there. And they were saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. They're all the things that he demonstrates in opening up the scroll. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and in all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's sing Lamb of God together.